When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gabfest New Jackass Old Tricks Edition. It's Wednesday, February 23rd, 2022. On today's show, Jackass Forever. Yes, it's the aptly titled movie featuring the merry band of MTV pranksters. They're led by Johnny Knoxville, and they're doing their crazy, proudly stupid, juvenile, violent, fill-in-the-blank stunts. Uh, They've been doing it for 20 years. They can't stop. Why should they? It debuted at the top of the box office. It's doing great business. We discuss with Slate's own Sam Adams. And then in the coming weeks, we'll be discussing best picture candidates. Today, we're going to do Nightmare Alley from director Guillermo del Toro, an epic and very American tale of love, money, corruption, starring Bradley Cooper, Rooney Mara, Kate Blanchett. It's an amazing cast. I could go on and on. And then finally... Have you heard? Vibe is the new zeitgeist. Is New York Magazine onto something there, or are they just high on the smell of their own BS? Joining me today is uh, Julia Turner, Deputy Managing Editor of the LA Times. Hey, Julia. Hello, hello. And of course, Dana Stevens, who is the film critic for Slate and the author of Cameraman. The subtitle to my book, Cameraman, is Buster Keaton, The Dawn of Cinema, and the Invention of the 20th Century. And actually, I had one thing to add to my weekly plug for Cameraman, which is that I wanted to appeal to the people who, for whatever reason, are not going to buy it. Maybe they can't afford to buy it. Their book budget is tapped out for the year. I get that. But if you want to support my book without buying my book, or if you've already bought it and want to support it some more, here are three things that you could do. You could order it to your library and then put yourself on hold for a copy. That way, the library knows people are interested and they buy more books. You could... Post it on your social media. Just go to a bookstore, (laughs) post a picture of it and say you would like to read it. Put it on your Amazon wish list. Or you could tell a friend about it and tell them that you think they would like to read it. So those are all ways that without me reaching into your pocket, you can still help me and the book. Uh, Fabulous. All right. Shall we make a show? Let's do it. All right. Well, Jackass, the TV show, it premiered on MTV in the portentous year of 2000, the turn of the millennium. And back then, it seemed like quite a dare. How low can the brow be forced to go. The show featured a group of guys trying to outdare and crack each other up, performing extreme stunts and pranks, often scatological or very penis-centric. In nature, the show lasted three seasons before controversy. IRL jackasses were duplicating the stunts at home and getting themselves hurt. So it migrated to cinema, where it only seems to get bigger with age, but not by growing up. Jackass Forever, the new feature film features Johnny Knoxville, the lead Carnian star, leading a pack of juvenile idiots through the same roster of shit, fart, pee-pee, and dick routines, and audiences apparently eat it up, while the intellectuals now apparently are reaching for their copies of Elaine Scary and Julia Kristeva and telling us it's art. Oh, dear. Um, before we dig in, let's listen to a clip. Uh, we don't have one from the new movie. We do have one from the original Jackass TV show. It's called The Cup Test, a bit that's reprised in the new movie. In the original iteration, it features a bunch of little kids walking up one by one and kicking Knoxville in the balls. Hi, I'm Johnny Knoxville, and this is The Cup Test. Kids kicking me in the groin, that was one of the worst pains because they could get between the nether region and you'd get it right in the perineum. Yeah. The coronal ridge. Like right right here? No! 
All right. Well, we're joined by Sam Adams, of course, the staff writer from Slate and very good friend of this program. Sam, welcome back. Thanks for having me. You wrote about uh, Jackass for Slate. Um, The range of what people see in this cultural artifact is as wide as I think I've ever, ever, ever seen. Uh, Some people see absolutely nothing and some people see it as a form of performance art. Where Where do you fall on the Jackass spectrum, Sam? I think it's very possible, at least for me, to do that in both. I certainly have, you know, thoughts about it. I actually participated in a marathon of all four movies at the Museum of the Moving Image in uh, Queens, which gives you a sense of the status these movies have acquired over the last um, 22 years. Um, So inevitably, one has thoughts. But but I think it's also important, too, as that clip very vividly illustrates, this is, you know, fundamentally a series about guys getting repeatedly kicked in the nuts and people laughing at it. Um, (laughs) I think one does not want to over-intellectualize that too much, lest one lose the elemental pleasure of watching people get hit in the balls. Was there a moment watching at least this, this having sat through a marathon of all of them, where you just thought, I mean, there's possibly there's something courageous about exhibiting absolutely no growth. Um, But wasn't there another part of you that said, maybe I do live in an idiocracy? There's a point where watching, I don't know, seven, eight hours to this, there was thinking like, well, maybe this is why I don't have more guy friends. Um, It's not a form of male bonding that is particularly familiar to me, um, I have to say. Um, So yeah, I mean, it's ridiculously stupid, but there is something kind of pure about it. Like there's absolutely no pretension to this whatsoever. And the failure to exhibit growth over the course of almost a quarter century at this point kind of feels like principle. Mm. Uh, Dana, it's 2022. We've traveled a long road since 2000. Uh, The spectacle of whites is het men not growing up maybe resonates a little differently now than it did in 2000 2000 you know 2002 yeah i guess i'm a little bit i'm a little puzzled i sort of want the the white cis het men on the panel to explain to me the longevity of this this franchise account for yourselves yeah honestly you guys have some explaining to do about plenty of things besides jackass but let's start with jackass this it's clear that this this latest iteration jackass forever does try to expand the the palette the diversity a little bit of the jackass crew there's one woman who sort of hangs around in the background and is a part of one stunt there's a couple guys of color which there haven't been in the in the gang in the past and they're younger guys so it seems like they're maybe being groomed to be the future jackasses but in general this really is a bunch of old white heterosexual dudes sitting around playing penis games and the, I feel like I don't know Sam you just sat through a marathon so you can speak to this more but I feel like the obsession the phallic obsession of jackass has really reached an extremely high point with this this particular installment there's almost nothing but you know dick jokes and dick torture throughout the entire movie and I mean I guess maybe this is me voicing the snob but honestly I think it's just me voicing my my own personal reaction is that I found this movie really hard to watch and in general I'm kind of grossed out by these stunts and I'm a little bit irritated by the lack of um of polish or follow through or framing I guess that's supposed to be part of the whole feeling is that it still feels like an old MTV show with just a bunch of stunts but essentially this movie is a bunch of little vignettes of individual stunts whether the stunt comes off or not they leave it in (laughs) you know there's a lot of kind of in between scenes joshing that is just left in there's one moment when two of the more minor newer jackass guys are talking outside of this coffee truck that also becomes a joke because like there's a kind of fist that comes out of the coffee truck and punches you. And one of them says something like, oh, it doesn't matter what I say because this is all going to be cut out in post anyway, but it's not. And I guess that's part of the joke, but it just seemed kind of slovenly. I don't know. I mean, this is only an hour and a half long movie and I found it very long and very boring and couldn't wait for it to be over (laughs) and and i have no objection i'm not like margaret dumont with the marx brothers where i'm you know storming around outraged at the vulgarity of jackass i just i just don't get i I guess i don't get the sadomasochistic humor relationship that we're supposed to have with jackass where we laugh at these guys being willing to injure themselves so i see what sam is saying about the purity (laughs) and i am somehow impressed that this this property has lasted so long but I am happy to let it exist in its niche that I don't have to think about or witness anymore. I mean, I I, I would largely join 
Dana in her remarks here, but I found a couple things interesting about this movie. First of all, I think we did discuss the third Jackass movie that came out 10 years ago. I have a vague memory of discussing this phenomenon and, you know, why it's funny for, to some people for men to mutilate their genitals for each other's amusement. Um, so, you know, stipulated that it is both a bewildering and sometimes funny phenomenon. But the two things that I found sort of strangely moving, beautiful, and wise about this movie were, one, it's like a, you know, it's, it's the, it's, it's friend, aging friendship. It's like a portrait of aging friendship. And these men who've, you know, the, the culture of their friendship is not the same as Sam's, it's not the same as mine, but they're back at it again. There's sort of a joy and delight in each person wearing the charming groove that they've worn for the decades of your friendship together. And you get to sort of be like, oh, it's Steve-O being so Steve-O. Oh, you know, there's like, it's like the same thing when you're an old person or a becoming old person and and getting together with your old crew. So the the sort of rhythms of old friendship refound all of that was interesting to watch. Then also, the finale is amazing. And I, I would propose that we spoil it here since the point of this movie is not plot. Uh, if you still want to see this movie, you know, maybe maybe skip this part. But the final <laughs> stunt, or not, maybe not the final, maybe it's the penultimate. I forget if they end with this one or with the, the bull. But, um, you know, they're doing some stunt that seems very playground, right? They're on like a spinny toy that kind of looks like one of those merry whirligig old playground toys that they banned for liability reasons. And they're all drinking milk and they're wearing pastel and they're all supposed to vomit all over each other. And it just seems incredibly juvenile. And then they appear to be in some sort of, you know, desert wasteland and suddenly actual military vehicles start like jets come and start strafing them tanks come people with guns come uh and they're taking projectiles which are paintballs i think the jet strafing i don't know that you can rig a jet to um bomb someone with a paintball but i think the i guess they were worked with aim there but anyway all these men who've been entertaining themselves with violence for decades suddenly find themselves in the middle of like militarized violence of the sort that you know a lot of you know, suburban white men have not had to face for the last several decades. And they're fucking terrified and they can't handle it. And it's awful. And it kind of goes too far. And it's beautiful. Uh, and the sort of aestheticized nature of it is terrifying. Like the end is kind of amazing. I thought it was this like huge comment on how uh, none of them could handle the sort of right. violence that culture really inflicts on men right. who don't have as much power as the men in Jackass, and I don't know, kind of, kind of, kind of blew me away. Yeah, I think that that's that's dead on, Julia. I mean, you know, I, it linked up in my mind with uh, trauma and this reexamination of trauma and how it's become a um, uh, omnipresent term of cultural explanation. And in examining it, what people are saying is that originally trauma actually was. It was rooted in uh, uh, clinically. It was rooted in the experiences of, of of soldiers who couldn't get over PTSD. It, it later became more general because of the experience of the Holocaust and survival survival testimonial. And it's detached from its origins in what we would think of as completely extreme, totally out of ordinary experience experiences of suffering and the aftermarks that they leave on a person's psyche. To anything bad that happened to anybody along an incredibly wide spectrum of human experience. In part, that can only happen because it, it, it can only happen in the context of people not expecting, you know, uh, the very worst outlier events of human suffering uh, to happen to them. And they don't have that as a basis to compare it to. Similarly, self Exhibitionistic self-torture like this emerges from people who aren't in danger of being drafted and sent to the Ukraine to defend Kiev, you know? I mean, there's some sense that this is just the opposite kind of generation of that generation that en masse went off to World War II and came back abhorring violence and completely happy to be suburban nobodies. I mean, I I was the son of one. I can vouch for it. Like they never needed to prove their masculinity in that context ever, ever again. And I, I, sorry, like I, I'll be the fucking skunk at the picnic. To me, it's just 
utterly decadent and incredibly sad as someone who himself struggled to evolve beyond his 15-year-old self to see people making hundreds of millions of dollars off of telling men that their authentic self is that self uh, or their best self or their funnest self is that self. I, I can't I can't sway this in French theory uh, and and be all sort of you know postmodernist about it and proclaim it art. I think it's just total trash. I mean, I I I'd never want to see any more of it. Sorry, Busty. That seems like a big turnaround from your first framing of the movie. It seemed like you had more tolerance for its for its mo um, before that last speech about it. But that made me think of you know, the moment that I thought for sure that Jackass as a phenomenon would end, and which in some ways it still seems shocking to me that it hasn't, which was when Ryan Dunn died in that car crash. Remember the the TV Jackass star, who I think was in at least one of the movies as well. And around 10 years ago, around the time that the, the last Jackass came out, he, you know, separate from the job, died in a drunk driving accident and killed someone else who was in his passenger seat and, you know, was so badly burned that he he could hardly be identified. It was a horrific story. And I remember that it happened right around the time. I don't know if it was before or after, but just when the new Jackass movie was in the news and thinking this surely is the end of the franchise, you know, that now they've been kind of exposed in a way as, you know, that this drive, this masculine drive to kind of experience the extreme and experience pain has has resulted in a drunk driving accident that killed two people. Granted, it is an indirect result because they were not doing a stunt for the show at the time. They were just living their lives, but they were living their lives by a very jackass sort of principle, right? Of, um, you know, just just let it ride. Just, just push everything to the limit as hard as you can. But it wasn't the end to jackass. And in fact... Those guys were sort of mourned by their friends as if, you know, their death would have been completely unconnected to any sort of ethic that Jackass put forward. And that's now kind of been folded into the mythology. You still sort of hear about, you know, them mourning Ryan Dunn and remembering him. I don't know. I mean, that is just something that that always stuck in my craw about Jackass and that to me is a big part of my uh, discomfort with the franchise. Yeah, I mean, one thing that's, that seems a little different about the new movie to me, and this is partly just because, as, as Julia mentioned, like the guys are just getting older now. They're almost all in their 40s. Johnny Knoxville is, is 50 by now. And in fact, he, um, in one of the stunts late in the movie that was turned out to be the last one being shot, he gets hit by a bull and sort of suffered significant brain damage. Um, so this is, may well be the end of the franchise. But partly just because the guys are older, there is less emphasis in this one on on just doing sort of potentially neck breaking things because their bodies just can't endure that anymore. And there's a lot more reference on just sort of like enduring pain and fear. There's one uh, sequence where Steve-O gets put to tapes a queen bee to his penis and then it's just covered with other bees. And the gag is just sort of like how long he can put up with this. Um, and there is something weirdly um, – I don't know, something connected to aging about that they're just sort of like, it's just how long can you put up with this pain while your friends laugh at you? And it is really sort of weird and sadistic, uh, but it is also somehow what has kept these guys together and indeed earning uh, large amounts of money for, you know, over two decades. All right. Listen, I ended up you get you didn't do it you sis hat to sis hat i thought you'd you'd have my back there bro but what'd you do you kind of waffled agnostic you you kept your critical aplomb intact and and you made me you made me be the priest at the uh, orgy all right well that's how it goes bro all right listen sam thanks for coming on it's always a total pleasure all right thank you tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast we typically discuss business. We have some, Dana. Uh, you got it. Share it. What's up? Steve, our first item of business is to remind listeners that they can get a great deal on the audiobook edition of my new book, Cameraman, Buster Keaton, The Dawn of Cinema, and the Invention of the 20th Century. Right now, Slate is carrying the audiobook, which I do the reading of, for just $13.99, which is $10 off the list price. 
And you'll be able to listen to it in your preferred podcast app. There's no standalone app you have to download and no subscription fees. This deal is brought to you by Slate, which means that your purchase not only supports me and my book, it also helps support the important and distinctive Slate journalism you depend on. So once again, if you want to listen to me reading my own audiobook, it's slate.com slash Dana, my own URL for a special deal on Cameraman. Our second item of business is to tell you about today's Slate Plus segment. This one comes from a listener question from a listener named James who asks, you're all content producers on the internet. How has writing on the internet influenced or changed the way you write or edit? Does having some information about how people interact with your work help you or hinder you or both? And do you have to context switch when you're writing a book instead of a slate piece? These are all great questions, questions about being not just a journalist in general, but a digital journalist, which is a really interesting thing to address in Plus, I think. Unfortunately, this week, I have to drop out of the Plus segment unexpectedly. I've got to run right after we tape the show. But our guest, Sam Adams, is coming back to talk about his experience being a digital journalist. And given that, unlike the rest of us on the panel, Sam is a Slate staff member and has some experience reading about the analytics of how his writing is doing each week, I'm sure that he will have a lot to say. So if you're a Slate Plus member, you can look forward to that segment at the end of our show. And of course, if you're not a Slate Plus member, you can become one at slate.com slash culture plus. If you're a member, you get ad-free podcasts, bonus content like the segment I just described, and unlimited access to all the great writing on Slate. I should also mention that when you're a Slate Plus member, you're supporting us, our work, the work of our colleagues, and all of the journalism that Slate does. These memberships are really important to keep Slate afloat, so please sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Once again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. Okay, Steve, back to the show. All right, well, Nightmare Alley has been nominated for Best Picture. It's the latest from director Guillermo del Toro. He, of of course, Pan's Labyrinth, Shape of Water, many others. This one is a Depression-era period piece. It stars Bradley Cooper as a wanderer who hooks on with a traveling carnival, falling deep into its subculture of strongmen, freaks, geeks, carnies, uh, sort of medicine show, snake oil types. He, however, he's different. He's a sensitive, intelligent young man, and he quickly takes to the life. He falls in love with Molly, one of the carnival's performers, helping her to refine her act. The two pair off and leave. What follows is an almost biblical tale of a man living out his fate in the Old Testament landscape that is America. It stars Willem Dafoe, Tony Collette, David Strathairn, and Kate Blanchett, and many, many others. It's an extraordinary cast. Dana, will you set up the clip for us? Sure. Uh, you're going to hear Kate Blanchett's first entrance into the movie, which is pretty far in. It's not until about an hour into this movie that we first meet her character. Her character is a slinky, femme fatale psychiatrist who shows up at a nightclub, a swanky nightclub, where Bradley Cooper's character is doing a, um, I mean, I guess you'd call it a, a grift. He's, he's pulling a kind of mentalist act where he guesses what people are holding up while blindfolded. And in the clip that we'll hear, Kate Blanchett's character is holding up this beautiful beaded evening bag and asking Bradley Cooper's character to guess what's inside. What is inside the bag? The usual's inside that bag. Lipstick, a handkerchief. Oh, well, that is easy enough, is it not? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I've never met this woman before. Nor have I any prior knowledge to the contents of that purse. Yet, yet, there is something very interesting in there. A small pistol. Nickel-plated ivory handle. May I? Dana, let me start with you. This is uh, it's quite a movie. It's it's what two and a half hours long. It's you. I mean, you just go on and on about the other people in the film who uh, have extraordinary parts. Um, it, does it live up to its scope? Does it pay out? I mean, I, I had a great affection for this movie for reasons that may go beyond the movie itself. It's it's the remake of a of what's now considered a film noir classic, although it was a critical and commercial flop at the time, the original Nightmare Alley from 1947. And it does a lot of different things with that movie, but I think preserves 
some of its feel, some of its kind of gritty, down and dirty feel, and that kind of noir hero who you want to root for, but you keep discovering more and more seedy things about him. I think the best thing about this movie by far is Bradley Cooper's character and performance, which is really impeccable. I think I would rather see him win an acting award than this movie win a Best Picture award, because by any objective measure, I think you guys will agree, this movie is too long. It's 152 minutes. The original Nightmare Alley was one of those little noirs that clocked in at just under two hours. And this movie gets pretty bloated in the back half and keeps adding characters very late into the movie. It almost feels like a limited series packed into the space of a movie. And so those are all problems with it. But each individual character and relationship and scene that you just described, I thought was great. I kept having this experience with Nightmare Alley where I would think, wow, these scenes with Tony Collette and David Strathairn, what a great Mm -hmm. dynamic between the couple. And then they kind of drop out of the movie early on for the most part. And we move on to a different set of relationships. Rooney Mara and Bradley Cooper, also really interesting. Um, and, you know, then the Kate Blanchett character enters late. And that those scenes are all great. But it feels, again, a little bit like a jumble and like something that's being jammed into too little space. Then again, I mean, Guillermo del Toro has this touch and this eye where for me, I just always sort of feel taken care of by him as a filmmaker. I mean, The Shape of Water is a good example. I didn't love that movie. I wasn't thrilled that it won Best Picture that year. But... I always felt that I was in the hands of a master and someone who knew what he wanted to do and what kind of colors he wanted you to see and sounds he wanted you to hear. And, you know, sometimes it seemed like a little bit too much upholstery and decoration and not quite enough substance in the case of both these two movies, Shape of Water and Nightmare Alley. But there's just a pleasure to being carried along by a Guillermo del Toro movie because he's such a visual master and he has such a great love of cinema. So I would be a yes on this. Oh, I I can completely see why people would, uh, would not finish it. It does seem, Julia, like the critical response has been somewhat mixed, even though it's you know nominated for the big, big prize. What uh, would you make of it? Yeah, there's something about this movie that feels so in love with movies and the history of movies. It felt to me a little bit like a, an advertisement for how circular film has sometimes become and why maybe it's not the most appealing medium to the next generation of audiences. Like... I don't know. It's very long. And for a lot of it, I was like, why would I, why am I watching this? I also, though, I will say, I, I'm really not interested in carnivals. Like I, there's all of these types of art that are set at carnivals. There was the HBO thing, Carnival, like the whole first hour of the movie takes place in this bleak haunted carnival scape where they're just like in a muddy field with a carnival and that's it. And I, 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 I personally am uncompelled by carnival storylines, but in every single scene, I agree the performances and the specificity of the characters um, is, is transporting while you're carried along on the journey. I agree that Bradley Cooper's performance is amazing. Uh, I'll always watch the angles of Kate Blanchett's cheekbones do whatever it is that she wants them to do. Um, but you know, even her, her character, who is a femme fatale, who, who, who you see both the femme and the fatale of over time, um, you know, seemed a little under, underexplored in some fashion. It 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 was sort of beautiful, but a little bit inert to me. But I also will confess, without revealing it, that I, I watched it over two nights, and after watching the first half of it with my husband, he was like, "What do you think is going to happen?" And I predicted the end. With <laughs> and was and without thinking that I was going to be correct, um, so I don't know. The whole thing just felt a little too tidy. And wait, and, wait a second. You predicted the end, end without giving anything away, like the end, end. Yep. You're shitting me. <laughs> no. <laughs> I was just like the only way this makes sense yeah. is if he ends up where he ends up. Oh my fucking god really all right well you i i can only doff my cap once again to the towering pile of achievement and acumen that is julia turner i mean i can't fucking really i i mean i saw it with 10 minutes to go right like but well can i just say that maybe it was the salve to the you know you know burn left me by sitting through jackass in a movie theater but uh, I loved this movie. I really did. I thought I wasn't going to either for all the reasons you cite, Julia. I mean, there's this, you know, old style 
you know, lavish homage to Hollywood movie making of yore, I often find there's this magnificent apparatus around a completely empty core emotionally. And I thought that this paid out emotionally over and over and over again, both in the individual scenes, each of which I find beautifully acted. And Jadania, you're right, the Tony Collette, um, David Strather and Bits are extraordinary. This old carny couple who've mastered all of the tricks of it um, and from whom Bradley Cooper begins to learn. Uh, through the whole thing, I thought it was both and then collectively it comes together without giving anything away. It's really about, it's about that bibl- weird biblical quality to the country, right? We have this way in which we're the most forward, most modern, most postmodern, least past obsessed um, country that ever existed. At the same time, don't you often feel as though we're laying the groundwork for thousands and thousands of years of human misgiving so that we essentially are the Old Testament to what to the human future? I mean, maybe that's a ridiculous amount of self, uh, American self-importance, but there is a way in which we think that we're self-making in this liberated way, but we're only tightening the new, new noose of our own character around our necks tighter and meeting our own fate at the end of it, which which this movie's about, right? I mean, it's this guy who's just too sweet, incorrupt, seemingly incorruptibly sweet, um, you know, with a guilty conscience, but a guilty conscience because not because we think he's a bad or a guilty person, but because he's a, a kind of thoughtful and, and soft one in his own way, who, because of his really kind of remarkable intelligence is able to grok the secrets of the carny existence and the mentalist, right? The sort of, in some ways, most challenging and subtly psychological of all the acts and begins to pursue it as an entrepreneurial passion and then lives out the kind of archetypal American story. I mean, you can, you can paint it, Dana, as a series of, of, um, broad brush cliches about the soul of the country, but I never found it that way. I thought it was quite, quite real courtesy of all the performances. I I found all of it just portentous enough, right? That's a very hard note to hit. I was shocked at how captivated by this movie I was the whole time. I was glad to be watching a, a movie that had a beginning, a middle and an end. And I, uh, as opposed to a streaming TV, TV show, uh, and I was gra- glad, very glad, very grateful that it was a long movie that I could get lost in in its dream space for those two and a half hours. I actually thought she was a tremendous femme fatale, Kate Blanchett, with the twist of the movie explores without being, I thought, heavy-handed about it, the overlap between, you know, sort of Freudian-style therapy, psychology, psychoanalysis as it's coming to the United States in the 1930s, and mentalism, i.e. this grift where you read a mark for what they most want and fear and then feed it back to them as if you're communing with the dead. Um, I don't know, Dana, have I swayed you? Where are you? I mean, I'm very pleased that you didn't find it too long. As much as I enjoyed this movie, like I say, I kept on watching it with this feeling like, oh, <laughs> normies who, who don't like to watch, you know, Guillermo del Toro remakes of old noir movies are going to find this too long and too padded. And I kind of agree with those normies, but I am still enjoying it. But it sounds like it 100% transported you. And that's great. That's what a movie should do. I don't know. I feel like every so often Steve does this thing where he like, where Steve's brain's version of the movie seems so much more interesting than the movie I saw. <laughs> like I'm, I'm getting strong whiffs of that. Like this movie didn't seem interested in the future of America or the American idea to me. It seemed in love with the history of movies and excited to marshal all the powers of modern filmmaking to pay homage to all kinds of film things past. And yes, I think my problem, I, I actually think the, you know, it, the, the the notion of creating a parallel between psychoanalysis and mentalism is was super interesting. And some of those scenes were the most interesting. And I think my problems with Kate Blanchett's femme fatale character might be problems with the femme fatale archetype, sure. not yeah. Guillermo del Toro's particular deployment of it or, you, you know, like the femme fatale archetype is not um, the, the most rounded or fully realized female form to see on screen just to put it mildly um, so you know i don't know but i just i the movie didn't seem interested in much beyond the images of film 
themselves oh. to me. It, it seems sort of in love with movie making in a way that fe- felt pat. I understand why people would be split on this. For 10 minutes, I thought, holy shit. I thought I'm just going to clock watch for 150 minutes. And then I really, really got deeply caught up in it, uh, totally bewitched. I would be very curious to have um, uh, listeners of ours who who see the movie email us and tell us what they thought. Because I, I do see this as a movie that can land multiple ways, but it's going to be possibly my dark horse, uh, the one I'm rooting for, for the Oscar. And of course, let me just say, HBO Max is where you can see it. So um, uh, I say check it out. All right, moving on. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now, open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right. Well, a vibe shift is the catchy but sort of too cool term that a trend spotter named Sean Monahan uses for a relatively simple idea. So writes Allison Davis in uh, The Cut from New York Magazine. In the culture, she goes on, sometimes things change and a once dominant social wavelength starts to feel dated. Julia, let me start with you as a a former magazine editor, now newspaper editor. You're paid to spot trends and put, you know, uh, zeitgeist uh, hustlers on the beat. Um, I couldn't tell whether this article was offered up with a kind of knowing smirk. I mean, We've done nothing but spot trends and zeitgeist for the entire time that I've been a sentient human being. I'm sure that it goes back centuries to the creation of the mass media and before that. Have they just simply renamed trend or zeitgeist or whatever you want to call it, vibe as a way of uh, of extending the grift? I mean, that great line from Nightmare Alley, um, same grift, different threads. Is vibe just same grift, different threads? What do you make of this piece? Steve, you're leaving off the shift. The the the, the trend spotter has predicted the vibe shift and <laughs> is presenting it as like an ominous cultural event, like a earthquake or a, a volcanic eruption. And the piece is is written from the perspective of people who fear being left behind by the vibe shift, also places that fear within the context of reemergence from the pandemic in a sense that there were sort of two years during which we were free from the oppressive dominance of any prevailing vibe, but in a way that leaves us all disoriented and rusty at the important sport of surfing the vibe. Like <laughs> this, this piece is a, a master class in knowing magazine prose and possibly has confirmed to me that I have officially really become a newspaper editor and not a magazine editor because it was so full of shit. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, in a, in a delightful way and in a way that sort of was aware of its own full of shitness, but like, yes, duh, there are trends (laughs) and, and there's a guy who's good at naming trends and he, and a group that he was associated with, uh, named the norm core trend, which I think we also discussed, uh, <laughs> which apparently was the prevailing vibe of like 2010 to 2016 or something. And then the 2016 to the present vibe was woke beast, uh, apparently, according to this article. Um, and uh, <laughs> like the, the, Articles very much written from the perspective of people who are kind of aging out of youth and who fear that they've like missed their last vibe during the pandemic. And and you're supposed to, you know, are you going to get frozen in the vibe? I mean, basically, which is just another way of saying like, are you going to continue enjoying the things that were popular when you were young and unencumbered in the manner of aging people since as long as there has been human culture? <laughs> like, 
<laughs> but vibe God. shift is such a great phrase. And then everyone, everyone, a very quote unquote, everyone spent a bunch of time on Twitter the day this article came out arguing about talking about debating the vibe shift. Like what a fun little bonbon of a, of a, of a cultural delight. And I think one thing that's interesting about this piece as compared to previous, you know, trend spotting pieces is that it does seem hyper aware of all of the ways in which you could argue with it. It points out the, you know, whiteness of the cultures that have been through these three vibes. It points out the narrowness, the New Yorkness, the age delimitedness, like the the group of people to whom these trends are real things that matter is uh, pretty niche. It's a niche that pretty closely aligns with the New York mag audience. But, um, you know, so it's sort of trying to get ahead of your critique of it in its style and tone. And it does it pretty effectively, but it's still transparent. Right. Um, uh, Dana, it does at least nod toward what the vibe we might be shifting into is, doesn't it? I guess he does say, Sean Monahan, the vibe shift predictor, does say... The new shift, here we go. The new vibe shift could be the return of early aughts indie sleaze. And he says, American apparel. I don't know how that's going to come back since the company's dead now. Flash photography at parties and messy hair and messy makeup. A more fragmented culture. I think if there's anything that holds together what this guy thinks is going to be different about the new vibe is that he thinks that the big tech platforms that have driven so many conversations and, and so much culture in the past decade are losing their power. Um, he thinks that you know younger people are not as interested in doing things online or going viral, that they want to have experiences in person. And that sounds very sweet. He doesn't offer any even anecdotal evidence <laughs> that that's the case. But that seems somewhat logical, I guess, that coming out of the pandemic, people would be more into face-to-face time than Facebook time. I know I feel that way. So maybe I'm on top of the vibe shift. (laughs) But my biggest question about this article is that I honestly can't tell. And I think a lot of the reception of it could not tell as well, whether it was a humor piece or a a trend spotting piece. It's some strange mixture of the two where I feel like it's almost trolling the reader to just make you feel like whoever you are reading this, you're uncool. You're not as cool as Sean Monaghan and his vibe spotters. And that was why people responded to it with such hilarity, usually to point out how old and sad they were and how not not shifting with the vibe. Um, What I thought it was vacuous but a stimulus the non-vacuous thoughts i thought one of which is you know what you know as the piece gestures to fomo took a huge and welcome hit during the pandemic in a way i mean there was nothing to be missing out on essentially and you know as fomo has become acutely psychologically painful with social media there is that part of the pandemic that was a relief uh added to which a lot of people didn't re-enter the labor force for a variety of reasons, but just statistically, it seems that there's an opt-out mentality uh, abroad in the culture. So there are a lot of different ways that we could go um, as we come out of pandemic, you know, God willing. One is that it's the roaring 20s, and uh, a lot of what made us fearful and, and, and agoraphobic disappears, and, you know, people just throw themselves back into the swim totally. But another possibility is that we come out of it and we sustain this sense of ourselves as a part and self-sustaining in some way. And everything is, I say this is an old person, so take it with a huge grain of salt, but everything is smaller, more intimate, more nurturing, um, and less uh, exhibitionistic. I would love that. But what I, I think I probably am inclined more to think that this is a... Uh, you know, it's like the first swallow of of summer, you know, in early spring, and they're all they're common, and just the word word itself, and the inanity of the word, and and the sense that oh my god, there's this thing, and if I'm left behind, it means I'm old and irrelevant, so I gotta not be left behind. What is it? You know, I I, I that that energy is pretty powerful. I mean, in an age of mass media, it's just inescapable in some sense. Um, I'm the pandemic reminds me a little bit. I'm curious whether this resonates with either either one of you of that weird moment between I would say, you know, sort of the second half of the first Bush's, um, you know, Herbert Walker's presidency, where we fell into a recession. Uh, and uh, the eighties felt definitively over because specifically of that recession that that Bush clearly wasn't going to be 
anything like a successor to Reagan. That like suppose that vulgar energy of the '80s had spent itself, and now people felt a little bit of a hangover and regret. And into that came Nirvana, grunge, Gen X, Douglas Copeland. The sense of like ennui could now become a thing, right? Like kind of, you know, uh, a kind of dropout culture, you know, represented by. You know the 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 grunge resurgence in Seattle and Portland. That's when Seattle and Portland became the cities that we now know them as. Portland, especially, you know, where young people go to retire. I mean that 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 became a a much more dominant. The mass media got a hold of something that was happening already and made it a much more dominant note in the culture. And I feel like the pandemic sort of done the same thing in a way, right? A lot of the old bullshit not that persuasive. You feel that opting out is a kind of relief. So it's just going to be interesting to see, you know, which of the two tines in the fork we end up taking uh, uh, um, going forward, but also whichever one it is, you know, vibe spotting morons are going to attempt to profit off of it. I will say Alison Davis, who wrote this piece, is I think one of the best writers at New York Mag right now. And I think the lightness of touch here. And the the it's it's a actual masterclass in magazine tone for all that I was critiquing and and making fun of it to a bit to a degree like to be able to do this and make you know this guy and his his goofy term for a new trend <laughs> like feel so apocalyptic and of the moment and to have it resonate in that way it requires real skill which she certainly displays the the bit in it that I thought was the most interesting was this quote from Monaghan. Uh, who says, I feel like the trajectory of the 2010s has been exhausted in a lot of ways. The culture war topic no longer seems quite as interesting to people. Social media isn't a place where you can be as creative anymore. All the angles are figured out. Young pe- younger people are less interested in things like quote unquote cancel culture. That notion of all the angles being figured out, I actually think you can see in the prose of this piece, like everyone is so used to the immediate response from so many people to whatever you see or post the the kind of cultural hyper awareness of how something might be perceived does actually feel new or different or like a way in which our technological moment is shaping our culture with some specificity even though i know it's my shtick on this show to argue that it has ever been less and technology changes nothing so I don't know. Like, I mean, this this trend spotter who is being featured does actually seem to have his finger on the pulse of the zeitgeist or vibe. And I think that sense of like, well, everybody knows how everything's going to go and we don't quite know what's next. I don't know. There's something there's something to that. It's just that if you zoom out, it's like, yeah, what's what will be next is some other set of trends. They may be the trends mm-hmm. of the early aughts, although that actually seems unlikely and sort of unimaginative to me. I bet there'll be some new trend. And then in five years, there will be an article about the changing of that guard, and we can discuss that. Yeah, Julia, you you pointing out the fact that Alison Davis is really skilled at this kind of prose makes me realize that, that that toggle sensation I had reading it of, this is humor, no, it's serious, no, it's humor, no, it's serious, was probably something that she completely set out to do. You know, there's something kind of stunt-like about this piece where even if you only scoff at Sean Monaghan and his trend spotting, you still find yourself captivated by thinking about what a vibe is and what it means for the feeling of a period to change, right? Just something we all sense when you look at um, anything, even an old commercial from eight years ago or something like that. You sense that there's something different Mm -hmm. in the way that we perceive of cool or of fashion or of desire, um, but it's hard to put your finger on exactly what it is. And so that slipperiness was no doubt part of the article's intent. Yeah, I'm with you. She's terrific. And um I you know, there is a there's a non-bullshit version of this which is the great sort of one of the founding Marxist cultural historians, Raymond Williams, called it structure of feeling. And you kind of need a semi-bullshit, hard to pin down term to talk about exactly that. That thing that in retrospect you're fully capable of delineating and specifying, right? Like all these things have this in common because they happen in the 1890s, uh, i.e., like that world is dead enough to us that 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 they couldn't have taken place, you know, even 20 years earlier and, and 20 years later. Um, I'd be very curious to hear from our our listeners. This is another one I just have to canvas you on. Like, what are you picking up out there in the in the spheres? Um, anyway, all right, let's move on. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. 
To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you have? Steve, I hesitated to endorse this because it requires a Criterion subscription, but then I realized that probably there's a very large overlap between our listeners and people who have Criterion subscriptions already. And if you don't have one, there's hardly a single gesture I could think you could do to expand your cultural platform footprint, uh, access to great cultural things than, um, than getting a subscription to Criterion, the Criterion channel. And my endorsement is just a little mini program that they're running on the Criterion channel for a reason that Julia will scorn, because I know that as an editor, she doesn't think that anniversaries or birthdays are a legitimate reason to uh, to run any kind of program or, or series of pieces on something. And in general, I tend to agree. But when it comes to Laura Dern, I'm willing to accept any excuse for seeing some more of her movies. And right now, Criterion is showing three Laura Dern movies in a little mini program that are not seen that often. They're from the 80s and early 90s. So from the period before Twin Peaks, before she was, I, I think, um, and Blue Velvet, and before she was as known to the wider public, two of them are directed by women, which especially at the time in the 80s and 90s was unusual. Um, and they're all three really great movies with Laura Dern that are far underseen. They are Smooth Talk, directed by Joyce Chopra which I think Dern was only a teenager when she made it. Anyway, she plays the teenager and it's a trigger warning, quite disturbing story about a relationship between a teenager and an older man, but it's fantastically acted by her and by Treat Williams. Smooth Talk is just a great, great movie. Um, Rambling Rose, which is easier watch. You would be able to watch that with your parents without extreme discomfort. And it's a beautiful kind of period movie that she acts in, also directed by a woman, Martha Coolidge, of one of my favorite movies of the 80s, Valley Girl. And then the third one, maybe people are more likely to have seen, it's the Alexander Payne movie, Citizen Ruth, which is this fantastic abortion satire. It's a satire of abortion politics in the U.S. Both sides, uh, pro-choice and pro-life, are satirized equally. And Laura Dern plays this fabulously dysfunctional uh, paint-huffing drug addict who gets pregnant and then becomes kind of a pawn in the culture war about abortion. Anyway, three starring Laura Dern. It's playing for the rest of the month, I believe, on the Criterion channel. She is so good. And I... She I, she recently came up on my Instagram doing like SponCon for some kind of face serum, and it reminded me of the other time that I found celebrity beauty spawn persuasive, which was when Kate Blanchett actually did ads for SK two or some, was some Korean beauty thing before Korean beauty was everywhere. Um, where I was just like, geez, I respect Laura Dern so much. If she likes this face serum, <laughs> like it's probably really good. Like I just, I think of her and Kate Blanchett as having so much artistic integrity that I'm like, fuck, I gotta buy that serum. <laughs> <laughs> totally agree. Whatever she's selling, I'm buying. She's just great in everything. I mean, you know, Big Little Lies. She's just tremendous in that. I mean, just on and on and on and on. And and you add it up, and it's just an incredible career. Julia, what do you have? Uh, okay, well, first of all, there's been a lot of response to the clock endorsement last week, and I want to just reassure a couple people of a couple things. First, someone wrote in and said, I also bought the wrong clock. What's wrong with it? Look, if you don't think anything's wrong with your clock, just keep using the clock. If it's working for you, I'm not saying that my clock preferences are the one true <laughs> clock preference. Enjoy. Uh, I also want to specify that Slate as an institution did not actually lead anybody astray here the the specific clock we name checked and the one we listed in our endorsement was the correct clock, which is the BNC009, also the BNC008 Braun alarm clock. Those both meet my specifications of having the time and alarm controls on the side and then the snooze and alarm on button on the top. However, Braun just makes it very confusing. So Slate recommended the right clock. You may have bought a different clock. If you want the same clock that I think is great, you're looking for the BNC009, which has a little tilty stem that leans back, or the BNC008, which is a slightly smaller model but has the same fundamental controls. Okay, <laughs> moving on to my endorsement this week. Uh, what do you, what would you guys say is the most known bookstore in LA? Name some books, some indie bookstores in LA. Indie bookstores. Um, there's the Last Bookstore in downtown LA. I love that store. Okay, exactly. That's what I was fishing for. Ah. So the Last Bookstore is, is this huge, you know, famous, extremely Instagrammable bookstore, which I took my kids to yesterday. Um, 
And I'm not not recommending it, but I will confess that there's always something that struck me as a little anti-book about the fact that they've got all these like sticky Instagram tunnels and holes where they like actually cut up old books and create sculptures out of them. It seems sort of un-bookstore to me to mutilate books in the name of decorating your bookstore. It's still a great bookstore, tons of interesting books, totally worth a visit. But the bookstore I'm recommending instead is Hennessy and Ingalls, which is this art and design bookstore that has just the most extraordinary collection of arcane and interesting books about you know, the, the history of design, the history of ornament, graphic design, art, photography, um, just like it, it, everything that interests me is in, is in that bookstore and all really kind of carefully cataloged and organized. And I just came away from having visited both bookstores yesterday being like, everybody thinks they should go to the last bookstore and take a picture in the book tunnel, which is actually sort of sacrilegious if you really love books. But if you think what books are for is the collective furtherance of human knowledge, like Hennessy and Ingalls represents so much serious thinking and delightful and beautiful thinking. It's tons of art books, obviously, as a design bookstore um, that, that you know, many of these books have extremely niche topics and niche audiences, but they're all there and findable and it's just absolutely worth a visit. So I'm not dissing last bookstore, just saying don't forget Hennessy and Ingalls on your LA bookstore rounds. What um, neighborhood is it in, Julia? It's in the Arts District. I can't wait to go there. I go there. I've never been there. Um, my next trip to LA. Well, let's do it. Um, Dana, I'm gonna tell me what these words mean to you. All right. Parlez-moi d'amour. Redites-moi des choses tendres. Votre beau discours, mon cœur n'est pas là de l'entendre. Nothing. Uh, that sounds like a love poem in French. Yeah. Uh, okay. How about the name Lucien Boyer? Not familiar. Oh, my God. The extraordinary singer of uh, French torch songs. Anyway, that's not my endorsement. There's a version of Parlez-moi d'amour, her big hit, Lucien Boyer's big hit, by this guy I know. He, As far as I know, he has no recorded output other than YouTube. What he is is sort of a – he's a guitar whiz – and a, just with a, the loveliest, gentlest disposition, he can play anything on a guitar. I'm not normally, you know, taken with um, chop, pure chops, right? The ability to play anything on a guitar. It's, to me, that's not important. There are people who make the guitar an expressive instrument who can barely play Mary Had a Little Lamb on it. There are, you know, people who can be total whizzes and play Bach perfectly and please me cold. But Josh Turner is one of the rare people who can who can play anything on a, a acoustic or electric guitar but he know he has wonderful taste he loves nick drake he understands why nick drake simply as a guitarist was a genius and has articulated it beautifully in some videos where he's trying to teach you how to play pink moon and various other things his the the, the, the intimacy with which he understands what for example drake was doing with the acoustic guitar really wonderful there's a video it has two hundred and eleven thousand views don't go to the wrong josh turner there's some grody pop star named josh turner but just put into YouTube, Parlez-moi d'amour. And there's Josh Turner. It looks to me like he's sitting on the banks of the Seine with an acoustic guitar doing a version of that song that's beautifully finger-picked and sung. He's got a lovely singing voice. Parlez-moi d'amour, redites-moi des choses tendres. Votre beau discours, mon cœur n'est pas là de it's just perfect and I, my daughter learns how to play songs by watching josh turner videos um i've tried to learn pink moon watching his video but his singing and his playing are just i to my mind exquisite i think he's just a wonderful kid and doing great things um and and listen to the lucien Boy, boyer version or boyer version um dana you'll love it especially i think but it's it's a classic and, and worth rehearing while you were talking, I remembered what the original song sounds like. I didn't know it was sung by Lucien Boyer, but it's an old chanson française, like a classic standard, you know, sort of French love song. Yeah, Parlez-moi exactly. d'amour. Yeah. Right? Okay, I'll definitely look at that version. Superb. Julia, thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. Dana, thank you. That was fun. 
it was a good one. You will find links to some of the things we talked about at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. I threw out a bunch of stuff this week. We love, love hearing from you. Uh, lets us know what this community um, nonce and ethereal as it is really uh, looks like. Our uh, theme music is by the composer Nick Bratel. Our production assistant is Nadira Goff. Our producer is Cameron Drews for Dana Stevens and Julia Turner and Sam Adams. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us and we will see you soon. Mm-hmm.